Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Gospel Tangents, the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. I'm excited to continue our conversation with Dr. Thomas Wayman. This time we're going to talk a lot about the Apostle Paul. Did he invent Christianity, as some say? Are there mistranslations in the Bible, as well as the Joseph Smith translation, on the Apostle Paul? So we're going to talk more about this in our next conversation. You won't want to miss it. Check it out. Since you mentioned Paul, I, I, I wanted to go there anyway um, for a couple reasons. Number one, I was listening to your interview with uh, Richie Stedman on the Culture Hall podcast, and you had mentioned that— um, I think the Joseph Smith translation had had changed Paul's words to exactly backwards from what he meant. Do you, do you remember which That's one you're Romans. referring to? That? Is it Romans? Romans? Yeah. And tell us tell us about that for those who haven't listened to Richie. Yeah, this is really hard to 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 kind of give in a nutshell, but I'll do my very best. In Romans seven, Paul is grappling with the reality that he doesn't enjoy being good. In a, in a very ground base level, and he talks about, I know what's right, I know what's good. He said, but the desire to do that, I have not inside me. It doesn't exist here. And then he says the most stunning thing: I like to do bad. And and Joseph will change that exactly opposite. And now what we've taken away from Paul is this granularity of a true believer. There's no doubt Paul believed. There is no doubt this man is committed to to the Jesus story and telling it. And he tells us, I struggle doing good. I I kind of like to do bad. He doesn't even say kind of. He says, yeah, I, I, I enjoy doing bad. And that's probably a reflection of these moments when he just lets people have it. He's probably, yeah, that wasn't my best, but I did it. And that's wonderful to me. I, mean, I don't want to celebrate his his badness, but... I I doubt very many people see that in reading a, a, a KJV. It's hard. I mean, it reminds me of a situation. If, and tell me if this is how Paul is, because this is what happened to me. I was standing in line at a buying groceries, and this guy who was in a wheelchair in front of me ran his credit card like two or three times, and it was pretty clear to me that he didn't have enough money or whatever. Anyway, they, they kept declining his sale. And I was, <laughs> I was irritated because I was like, would you just get out of my way? I want to buy my stuff. And, and so they rang it through again and I just hurried and I shoved my credit card in there and I paid for his groceries and, and it, he didn't really realize what happened. I mean, the clerk knew and she was like, wow, that was really nice of you. And in my head, I was thinking, I know it was nice, but I just wanted him to get out of the way. <laughs> 
Now, see, Paul would have written a letter later to that man and denounced him for having done that. Oh, really? Yeah, Paul loves the letters genre to to tack people. I think there's distance. He's sailing across the Mediterranean. He writes back to these communities, and he just blasts them. Oh, wow. Yeah. In- see, because I, I struggle with that because on the one hand, I know it was a kind thing for me to do, but I did it with such a bad attitude. <laughs> well, you have Paul on your side. He is telling you. I I have a hard time finding the font of doing good in me. And and that's powerful to me. There's no one in the New Testament that says that. Everybody else gives us the shined, polished, you know, I always want to do good. And Paul has the burden of belief on his shoulders and he's like, yeah, sometimes I just don't want to do this whole thing. Well, because I can totally relate to that because to me it was kind of like that situation. I was just like, would you just get out of my way so that I can buy my groceries? Because, you know, there's this the parable where Jesus is like, well, if you don't do it for the right reason, it's it's not a good thing, you know. And on the one hand, I had this sales clerk was was just like, wow, I can't believe you did that. And I'm thinking, I did it for the wrong reason, though. Right, so the benefits <laughs> it, lost it didn't, to me. It didn't bless me at all. Yeah. And so are you there like Paul or the, in, you know, imagined disciple that Jesus has? Yeah, he's wonderful that way. And he he's contrite he at times he really backs off and he he kind of says well i was speaking like a man there which for paul is code for i was being a jerk i i was i know it i'm going to call this back in and here's where i really stand and and i think if we go through and this is hard i don't know what to do with this but we go through the jst and we fix all these it's hard to know for a latter-day saint well which is the real paul then right and the manuscripts all support the way it is in the New Testament. They don't support that re-envisioned um, Paul. Um, Paul. Romans is one of the toughest books to read. It's it's so Shakespeare. Yeah, it's impossible in the King James Version. <laughs> you know, I, I had a, a scholar um, here on campus who came in and talked to my Romans class. And one of the things he said that was so powerful is that Martin Luther um, gave a series of lectures every Sunday for a year on Romans. And so here are the hour-long plus sermons on Romans, students taking notes. And this is one of the later things he does in his career. And I thought, and in our curriculum, we have a 30 to 40-minute segment on oh, Romans right. once every four years. That that kind of captures Romans is the book of books. When we, you and I started by talking about the Gospels, but so many Christians start with Romans. Oh, really? And and so I think we miss the fact we're we're so focused on the Gospel versions of the of Christianity that we miss the fact that Romans conceptualizes what it means to be Christian hmm. for many many people. Oh, that's interesting. Because I will, you know, I was talking with Kyle yesterday, and I said, you know. I feel like I know the Gospels pretty well, but the rest of the New Testament, I'm pretty, I don't know. Sure. I don't know sure. anything. Yeah, well, we don't do a lot with it either, no, right? No. Yeah. So we we spend, uh, you know, a lot. we do some funny things with the New Testament. We often have a book of Revelation lesson on Christmas. <laughs> yeah, I know. And that's kind of odd. That, oh, let's talk about the end of the world on, on the day we celebrate the birth. And Easter doesn't line up with Easter lessons. Exactly. And that that's harder for us. And then, you know, we do Isaiah in summer and we do the epistles of Paul in the summer and early fall. And 
it's kind of like, okay, back to work, back to school. And I'm reading these things I don't understand. Exactly. Yeah, it's hard. It's a hard, uh, hard order, if you will. I want to run another theory by you. I remember hearing somebody who said that Paul invented Christianity. Um, that the Christianity of Paul is very different from the Gospels. What, what do you think of that? It's a common theory that um, had a lot more prevalence uh, maybe a generation ago. Um, I think it still has some strong adherence. I would probably paraphrase it just a little bit more and say that maybe Paul Paul created what it means to be Christian, that maybe he doesn't invent Christianity because that has some really loaded implications. But Paul Paul shows us what it means to grapple with the Jesus story on the ground every day, and it be hard and difficult and oppositional and things like that. And so, a sense, I think we should all be comfortable in some level. The practice of Christianity is told more through Paul's eyes than anybody else. We 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 have the stories of the disciples in the Gospels, but they're really Jews when they're doing all that. And so we don't really get to see them be Christians. They believe in Christ, but they're, as far as we know, um, Jews. And Paul is this first person that really says, okay, um, I had a revelation and I'm re-seeing Judaism in a new light and I'm seeing Christianity in another light. And so, yeah, in some sense, there's some validity to that. Hmm. Interesting. How, how, I mean, can you elaborate more on that? How is Paul different than the Gospels? When we say different um, than the Gospels, um, that's that's interesting. He also doesn't have an empty tomb as the central point of the story. So, when you think about what the Gospels are doing, there's a bit of a crescendo approach um, that, that, you know, this book is working towards the empty tomb and the triumphant uh, moment of the resurrection. Paul is not. Um, Paul is looking at, if we're looking at Corinthians, and he tells the Christ story, it's very short. And so he recognizes celebration of the Eucharist or sacrament is a key moment in the Jesus story. He doesn't see the miracles as informing his story, but he sees the suffering. And so Paul in Romans, and then also in Philippians, which are written at a near time together, he starts to realize that the thing about Jesus is maybe not all of these teachings that I analyze my life by, but that my sufferings have helped me conform myself to Jesus who suffered. And so there's a kind of shared or participatory notion in the Pauline story that's very different than the Gospels. And so that would be one way, uh, you know, a person believing and asking about the text, how they might engage it um, differently. But yeah, they, they are inherently different. If you think about you know, what Mark, Matthew, Luke, John are doing. They're trying to get the sayings out there. Matthew has a great sermons approach. Here are the five great sermons. This is the way the life was structured. John has the signs. You see the signs and you come to believe it. And 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 there's these that approach that the sayings mattered. And in some way it almost undercuts the empty tomb story. Is it the sayings of Jesus that made him the Messiah, or is it the empty tomb? And you can say it in another way, nothing else matters without the empty tomb. And and so the sayings are kind of additional. Um, Paul doesn't see it that way. Damascus matters a lot to him. Um, his own trying to see the world 
through um, through the way he he has understood Jesus spiritually matters to him. He'll talk about in Corinthians, this is what the Lord would say here. And then he'll say, and this is what I would say, and I think I'm right. And that that's really, what does it mean to be Christian? That's what it means there. Hmm. Interesting. Um, you know, I know First uh, Peter has been... Uh, I think Luther said it was a epistle of straw, something like that. You're probably talking about James, right? Isn't or it? James, James, sorry, James. There's, that's what I meant. Um, how, do you get into the grace works uh, issue there with with James? Um, I've I've always had on a very personal level believe it's a conversation with Paul, and I think he is trying to offer a either a counter to Paul himself or to the way Paulian Christians are seeing the world. And I think it's a subtle, I think it's a subtle rebuke. I've never been in print on that, and I don't think that I will. But to me, I've seen people try to read it and say, James is really in agreement kind of with Paul. I just don't see it. I see Paul as saying, you know, effectively that that the Christian accepts Jesus into his or her heart and lives a life in light of that. And so works are integrated into that process. And and I almost see James as saying that works are what define you, that that is the Christian. And uh um that that's a I think that's a counter to Paul. I, I think he's worried a bit. So because you know I know that especially evangelicals are all about grace. And so James is a is a response to the Pauline overemphasizing grace. grace. Yeah, Paul uses charis. That's the word quite a bit. Um, this idea of of something being given freely to you. Charis can mean thanks. It has the sense of gratitude built into it, and a and a kind of granular feature of of something given um, freely, openly, and and that that grace is the way it's characterized by them is often a good way that it. Is, is appears in the Pauline corpus. It doesn't really appear that way in James, nor the Gospels, really, for that matter. It's not really a prevalent feature of the Gospels. Okay. Philemon is one of the smallest books in the New Testament, and I can remember somewhere I it was a podcast or something where I'd heard that uh, he was a slave, right? Sure, or, yeah. And that Paul was counseling him to go back to his slave master. Yeah. And yeah. In the, in the post-slavery America, we would view that as as a quite a big problem, right? That Paul would actually counsel. Do you do you deal with that? Do you, any commentaries on that with Philemon? Yeah. If, um, the way I restructure the letter, and there's some other you know ideas out there, but the way I restructure it is, it does appear that Paul has known both the owner of this slave and the slave himself. And and so he has a relation with both. Um, the language of the epistle is light. It's it's a little bit jokey. It's a little bit, um, if you will, kind of tongue-in-cheek a bit. And so um, it, we need to kind of say, what is Paul doing? He's doing something that by modern sensibilities, it should be a boundary, right? Right. We would not cross that. And, and I, we would support the slave running away basically. Yeah. And I, I want to fully be on that side. 
Um, what are we doing with Paul? Well, we're, we're realizing he's a Roman and he grows up um, probably himself in slavery. Um, he bears what looks like a slave name. Um, he has the single name and he has Paulus as his name, which means the runty guy. And mm. he, he, you know, there are theories that this is a, you know, a Roman um, name, but he doesn't have a double name. And so he has that single name, looks like he is indeed himself from that. So he potentially would be aware of what he was doing to this this person. Um, so yeah, it's it's problematic. I don't want to cut it, Paul, any slack. Um, it, if that's indeed the way uh, that historically moment transpired, um, I I think we should say no. That that's a pretty poor idea. But we do have that in Timothy too, right? I mean, this idea of how how slaves should perform in the household, and and it's very much a vertical structure and. And the author of those epistles also endorses that. I mean, I'm sure pre-Civil War America, the the slave owners in the South were like, hey, look at Timothy, look at Paul, or uh, Philemon, I guess. Um, and we just, I don't know, <laughs> especially with race that we have, uh, do do you see any any parallels with our current problems with the New Testament? I do. Um I, I do think that the New Testament has led us to believe that the ethics of the first century should be ours and that we're not comfortable criticizing it. I I know that it's a hard space for many people to say, but I think we ought to say, no, the New Testament um, is something that is subject to correction. We we should not endorse this view of slavery or or even the kind of vertical views of women that are presented in some of the Pauline epistles. They are to be silent in church. Yeah, and you know, I, I would never in my Sunday school raise my hand and say, you know, Paul's wrong here. That that's not a space I want to be in. But but as a community, I think we need to come together with united voice to say we stand apart from that. We don't we don't support that. And and there'll be things I think in our generation that future generations will say, no, that that's not right. And I hope they'll call us out and be brave enough to do that and, and say that. I'm glad you mentioned that. It brought, brought up another question. Junia versus Junius. Yeah, I, I don't really have much to offer there. Um, yeah, I, I hear the. I, I'm familiar with the debates. Um, but for for readers, because some of my readers may, or listeners may not be familiar with the debate. Well, what tell is me where debate? you're coming from on this first. <laughs> tell me what you, what you know. So, it, and I'm trying to remember because I don't remember my my names very well. One is a male name and one is a female name. Right. right. Which one's which? Junia will be the female name and Junius will be the male name. Okay. So the the debate is. Junius was the female, Junia was the female, that it was originally Junia, Paul was addressing it, was talking to a woman who seemed to be a leader in the church. Yeah. And the early, uh, I mean, is this, can we say the early people were corrupt? I mean, this, this goes right into purposely changing the text. They change it from Junia to Junius who's a male name, to say it was a man that Paul was speaking to. It's tricky for the modern reader to fully understand what's at play here, but it's what we call a declined word. And so, Junius and Junia, um, it sound like two very different names to us with an S at the end of one. But when you put them in like a dative case or an accusative case or whatnot, they decline similarly. 
And the challenge is now in Koine Greek, and this I know is a very complicated thing, but but I want to take off the table that there was any intentional corruption with that. Oh, I think I think they're genuinely because I've heard it was an intentional corruption. Well, it could. It could be. I just don't know why, um, because the early church was open to women, women leaders. And so, we're kind of implying that they were upset with that one, but they were okay with all the others. I, I think people miss the fact that the word deacon is primarily a female position in early Christianity. It okay. means a servant who serves in the household and primarily serves at the table. And so, Jesus models the, the Christian deacon on a female role in the church. And the church recognizes that, right? I mean, they have, um, you know, people called that in Roman, a woman called that in Romans. And and so, it, that's not surprising. You can, in early Christianity, talk about female deacons. You mentioned earlier Mary Magdalene, who's called, the you know, the apostle to the apostles. So, to say that Junia draws all this, like, oh, no, we better get rid of that one. I don't know. They have no problem making female uh, disciples the first people to see Jesus. They're the people who are causatively responsible for the epistles to Romans. You have a, a female um, disciple there. You have female disciples um, elsewhere. And so, yeah, I don't know why that one. So, I'm a little, I'm a little mixed on the causation or well, the reason to get rid of and this might be some feminist theology, but I'd like to explore it a little bit. Um, I know Bridget Jack Jeffries gave a presentation at Sunstone probably a decade ago. It's been a long time, but I was really impressed with it. Um, she talked about women in the Bible with priesthood. Although she, she said, I realize that's kind of a clickbaity title. <laughs> it's, it's kind of anachronistic. But she went through and she mentioned Junia, Priscilla, Phoebe, um, yeah, Chloe. Some of these women, uh, even Mary Magdalene, um, you know, there was the Pope in the, I, I don't know which, what century. There was a Pope who said Mary Magdalene was a prostitute to kind of denigrate her. And, that, that you know, because there's lots of Marys in the New Testament. And the Pope said, well, Mary Magdalene was this prostitute. And kind of to denigrate her and to, and to push her down because there were too many uppity women. <laughs> and And so, you know— Bridget had mentioned um, some of the the women of the Bible that that baptized, um, and and you know in the LDS Church we would view that as a as a priesthood function. It may not have been viewed that way in the first century, um, and so can you address the so the idea is the corrupt Catholic Church didn't want these uppity women, and so we we changed their name. From Junia to Junius, um, we we denigrated Mary Magdalene um, to 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 push women down. Yeah, I mean, I I see you know all of those words, lots of problems in those words. But but if we're if we're kind of saying like where do we start in this conversation? Um, uh, first of all, we want to clarify this word priesthood. You know, to us, it's something we hold and, it's, right. and it's given. And priesthood is an abstract noun that means the thing priests do. So, a priest walking to his car is performing priesthood. He's doing a thing a priest does. <laughs> and I, I think we really miss that. It's a, it's a sense of a power and so forth. And so, we've isolated the priest acting at the altar, sacrificing or whatever he does, that's priesthood. And now, it's come to mean 
this kind of special office that someone holds. And I'm not here to criticize that at all. That That's part of the, the rub here, like the, the, what we're misunderstanding. And so to have a woman acting, I hate to use the word acting, but performing the same things a priest does would functionally be um, priesthood. So she walks to her car, she's performing in the act of the priesthood. And I, and I use that well, kind of— that's what Elder Oaks said in that recent conference address, right? Sure. I, I, I'll just avoid that there. But, <laughs> but, but the sense is, how far does that go now? Right. And so when Mary Magdalene walks back to Jerusalem and tells the disciples that, um, that Jesus is risen, those words— make her an apostle. The word apostle means someone who declares, who speaks out the story. She's an apostle. A special witness of Christ? Well, Could we say that? Yeah. And so, she has all these things that she does that are also what the male disciples are doing. And they, interestingly, bear the word name, not apostle, really in the Gospels at all. Um, they're, they're students. And so, now you have an apostle teaching students. You have a deacon, a woman who serves every day in her home, and she serves the church members, and she is acting as a deacon. It's not an office, you know, they wouldn't have called that priesthood, but she would say, and she should proudly say, I am a Christian deacon. I am serving in the capacity of serving the saints. And so, by the act of the woman washing Jesus' feet, she deaconed or deaconed him. And so now, are you talking about the one where she wipes her yeah. feet with his hair? Her hair. Yes, she is acting as a deacon to the Lord. Oh. And so now, our modern kind of veneer tells us: well, there's teachers, and there's deacons, and there's priests, and there's high priests, and there's elders, and there's all of these things. And the early church is hearing: well, we have servants in the church, we have shepherds in the church, and we have old people in the church. And those three names come across as deacon, bishop, and elder. Hmm. And and so you have crossover in roles. It's, I, I hate to say roles. I, I don't like to confine anyone to a role, but we have crossover. Women are doing all those things. You have elder women, wise women. Paul says you have women prophets. So now there's a blurring. Right. And you have people who are insightful as women like Chloe, who have written to Paul and said, there's a lot of problems in Corinth. You probably ought to come back. The minute she wrote that, she's acting in the office of shepherd. Hmm. And so, so to say, oh my gosh, we're suppressing all these things, and and to use these problematic categories that women got to uppity, using your words <laughs> and not mine. Um, I I don't I don't quite see that. Um, if you know, if the restoration is going to engage this question, there's a lot to learn from it. If we're going to, as a people, say. Well, what that mean for us today, and and it shows a lot more, um, you know, if you will, horizontal structure to early Christianity, and there is some vertical, but a lot of horizontal. I think that's what the Jesus tradition does better than anything else. It flattens vertical structures. It says that the poor and the haughty can work side by side, and the proud and the meek can come together. And men and women, rather than being this kind of verticalness, can come together. And Jesus, who's God, can descend below all. And I think the Jesus story flattens all of this vertical stuff that we love and says, now you're all my people. 
And so I think there's a lot to learn there, but yeah, that's a, that's a complex story, but I, I'm not, I mean, it sells books, right? Suppression, hiding, you know, taking away, changing names. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe, but. I mean, well, the other thing is a lot of times you would see murals of ancient Christian stories and women's eyes would be blotted out basically. Like they were defacing their face, essentially. Um, like further action that we're trying to denigrate women or, or that sort of a thing. So you, you don't agree with that narrative? If we're talking the earliest generations of Christians, no. I, I don't think there's a, a movement to suppress women. If anything, Mark could end his story with Mary Magdalene. He didn't need to say, well, comma, and then Peter came and and had a witness and became a special witness of Christ. That option was available to him. He ended with her. So, okay, but what about the first centuries after, after say, 100 to 400 or even later? Well, unfortunately, and this is me, pop culture, but I think all, all communities um, regulate their borders and they create borders and they define borders. And one of the first casualties of that creation is the regulation of women in the community. And sure, I think Christianity undergoes that. But but my understanding is this is an effort to define who we are. You mentioned earlier Gnostics. There's these groups that have different views about Jesus. Well, we better put up some boundaries. And in now in our boundary, we dress this way. That's one of the earliest conversations. What do we wear? Second and third and fourth will involve women. Um, it will involve food. It will involve all these interesting conversations to say, let's let's draw some boundaries. And, and it's an unfortunate part of life. But it seems to me that the New Testament's pretty egalitarian um, with that in this conversation. Okay. And then as far as the famous <laughs> scripture, women should be silent in church— <laughs> It seems like there are some people who question whether that was really Paul or a disciple of Paul who wrote that. Sure, First Corinthians 7. Okay. Um, I don't know. I have a little bit different take on it, and and maybe I'm maybe I'm out on a limb here, so everybody just, you know, dismiss this. But I mentioned earlier that, that Paul has this part of him that's not as pleasant. It it's frustrating. And what what folks miss in in that First Corinthians seven passage is there's a question about prophets in the church, and women speaking, and the question is is he putting something down that rivals his own his own prophetic presence in the community? That uh, let's flatten this, let's fix this. You're mentioning earlier, you know, are we going to have to regulate it? And the regulation of that may be in part with Paul's idea that this leads to chaos that this rivals me, that this challenges my authority. And one thing we never point out, we don't know what those folks said. So when we talk about it, it's very misogynistic. I don't want to let him off the hook there. But the question is, what were they claiming? Um, you'll remember the phrase, no one can say Jesus Christ is accursed, but by the Spirit of God from the Joannites. Uh, but they can't say that with the Spirit of God, rather. That comes from the Joannine story. And and one thing about that is that looks like some Christians believed they could claim that Jesus is cursed. And the author says, no, you can't do that. And so when we think about what's happening in the Paul community, what's being said, and Paul with his sometimes over-exuberant self, I've suppressed something that he thought was challenging him. 
Hmm. Very good. What else is in your New Testament? Anything else? Well, the New Testament's in there. <laughs> no, there's, uh, you know, I mean, if we're thinking, you know, why do you want to read this? Um, yeah, one one story I saw, um, I, I was asked to speak to a group of saints, and um, if the Bird family's out there and listening, this was their family. And it was one of the most interesting things I, I ever saw. And I, I hope you, if people ask, you know, why do you do this? And there's a sense that I wanted to fix and regulate. And I didn't really want to do that, but I wanted to see this experience. They had a family scripture night, and it was happened pretty late in the evening. I think it was about 10 o'clock. And they had a big round, you know, sofa right in the middle of their family room. And, uh, and uh, the mom or the dad called upstairs, boys, come down for scripture study. And I know what my family would have looked like, but these boys come running down. And what I hadn't noticed is there were uh, different translations of the Bible on this, on this kind of sofa thing. And they functionally dove for their, their favorite Bible. Hmm. And there was a, a bit of sadness for this kid that got stuck with the KJV. <laughs> and it was like, oh, why do I have to have this Bible? Yeah, uh, well, yeah. And, and it's not that I'm want to tell it for the denigration of the of the Bible, um, of the KJV, but the Bible can be exciting. Um, I think we forget just in the same way that literature can be exciting. This tells a story of a people trying to know God and and I I hope it comes alive for people that it that it can be a conversation again. And and I think that's what's so powerful about the JST is I think he views Bible as a conversation. Um, I, and while it's not always supported by manuscript, he thought it's something you can go in and say, what about that? I see it a different way. And now it's fixed. We closed it. We printed in leather. And you really can't mess with a book written or published in leather, right? It's hard to write on that. Um, it, you've paid good money for it. And and now I, I hope we can bring the Bible back to what it was. Um, people being people while believing. And so, yeah, I hope I hope that can come across. And why did I do this? You know, what was my intent? Um, one thing that almost very few people have ever known about it, this was always about me. This was always me doing this behind the scenes for me. I, I, I had come to believe. And it may have been for you, but it's sure good for me. Well, thanks. But, but I... And I, I know this will be strong, and some of you might not like to digest this, but I came to believe that the King James was a train wreck. And I'm doing this behind the scenes for me to say, you know, can I can I engage this text again? Because I clearly um, have the ability to read it in Greek, and now what, what does it mean to me? And so I'm doing all of this for years on my own with no intent of making it public. and and. And so it's a journey for me, in a sense. Like this is something that that inherently matters. Um, it's the same reason why a colleague might translate Homer. And it's a powerful text. Homer can bring you to tears with the way he deconstructs toxic masculinity. Jesus deconstructs vertical hierarchy. And hmm. if you offer to someone so poor. And, and I don't think people really grapple with how poor the empire can make you. And Jesus says, well, you can be equal. And that that's revolutionary. 
And so, yeah, this is, this conversation needs to be had again, in my opinion, by by a lot of us. So, so that's my card. You know, I'll play. That's the one. Uh, it's a personal. It's a deeply personal project, and and always has been. And so, there's a lot of me in that. The whole dismantling the hierarchy, you will hear some people that say, Jesus never started the church. And it sounds like that's what you just said, right? Yeah. Um, and the idea is, I don't need to belong to a church. I'm, I think church, in what it's come to mean today, is a bounded community. Um, I I don't think that Jesus quite put his effort there. But he does create an ecclesia and that's the word that will be translated as church, that we are a community of believers. Um, I think that's intentional. I think he very clearly wants us all to kind of engage this story and believe. Um, but this whole notion, this modern notion, I'm I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, etc. Mm-hmm. I, tr- I wouldn't try to delegitimize or legitimize that based on the Jesus tradition. Um, I think he, he asks like any kind of ancient believer does belief matter? And and that's where it comes down. But so much of what we're doing today is fighting over identity. I'm an X, and then you fill in that blank by your denomination. And I think I think that would look silly in the first century a bit. I, I think Jesus would say, what do you mean? You know, that, that's hard for me. Well, it does bring to, to the question, there were, because I've heard some scholars say, there were many Christianities uh, we've, we've talked a little bit about Gnostics, um, and then I guess the the only other one that people know about is what would be either Catholic or Orthodox. W- were there other groups out there besides those two? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We have. Can, can you talk a little bit about those? We used to talk about those folks who wanted to define Christianity through the lens of Judaism. We sometimes talked about them as Judaizers, um, and that was a common way to talk about the people Paul encounters in in his epistles. Um, we think that there are people that we used to describe again. I'm, I'm using older terms. That's a lot of where my schooling was done. We called them docetists, and those were the people who didn't really believe that Jesus had a mortal body. They, they struggled with the flesh of Jesus. They believed in him and so forth. And uh, But the, he was just a spirit and he didn't actually, was not born. And... But he looked like you and I did. He looked tangible and other things, but he was, he only seemed to be flesh. And that's mm-hmm. what the word docetist comes from, is a, a Greek word to seem. Well, that would be, math. that's why Matthew and Luke Talk about the birth story to counteract that, right? Oh, well, it might be. It might be that they're trying to settle some of those debates. Um, clearly, Paul encounters a variety of Christians who still believe in the Jesus story, but still think it's okay to sue a Christian. So there, there's even that level that that you can have someone in the community who can be a prophet outside of the Pauline you know, hierarchy. And and so, there, there's a variety of early Christians. And when we get to the second and third century, this kind of granular beginning, you know, four or five groups becomes a kind of flowering of expression, um, all united around the Jesus story. Um, the challenge is, is when we say what should have united those is maybe what Gospel of John offers, do you love one another? If the Jesus story had a kind of lasting impact on all these groups, it would be, are you ethically like him? And that ethically like him was, do you love one another? And and 
that's clearly not the case. They began hating each other and, you know, excommunicating each other and, and anathematizing one another and, and sending each other into, you know, sending each other away into exile. But, but the reality is, I, I don't think Jesus wanted to bound the community, potentially realizing that once you put a boundary on it, you weaponize the boundaries against your own people. And that's, that's probably fair um, for early Christians. One other thought that comes to mind, um, I've talked to several people <laughs> about different atonement theories. I, I know Terrell Givens said that uh, atonement, I don't think atonement is even in the Bible. It's in Romans. It is in Romans. Okay, but there was basically, I, I know Terrell said in the early days of the church, Jesus died, was resurrected, that's it. <laughs> yeah, like a kind of ground zero belief. Right, and so... You know, there's other theories like penal substitution, Christus Victor, things like that. But those aren't really biblical. Those are post-biblical. Would you agree with that? A lot of the ones you mentioned, yeah, there are. I mean, clearly this is a big conversation in second and third Christ century Christianity, um, for sure. Like, what does the atonement mean? Is it substitution? Why did Jesus die for us? Is it ransom? Um, is it, you know burying all of our sins and then killing them in the act of death. And it's all of these interesting thoughts. So the New Testament doesn't really answer that. Would you, would you agree with that? Uh, no, the only answer you really have offered is Paul's and whether Paul's sufferings conform him to the life that Jesus envisioned. That the, that the sufferings in the sea, the being whipped, the being, you know, whatever tortured that happened to him, he begins late in life to think that's what makes him a follower. And in sense, being conformed to the death of Jesus means suffering in a way that he did. So that is beginning of atonement theory. Um, so I wouldn't say there's an absolute no conversation about it, but um, at least in that part. Um, okay. The other thing that might be a bit of overstatement, and no disrespect to Terrible, so if you're listening, um, I, I would. I, he told me he never listens to podcasts. Oh, good. Okay. Well, then, <laughs> then great. But but this the word sin amartia and. And that fact that it is on you, it's something you do and you generate hamartia, sin, that's everywhere in the New Testament. So they are grappling with the idea that I bear the burden of my actions. So they're going to actually resolve that in some way. So there, there is a conversation there. Um, but no, I would say it is true to say that it doesn't really resolve it. The New Testament doesn't. Do you have any theories on atonement that you'd like to share? I I don't know. Um, no, that's a really good. Um, that's a really good question. I don't know that I'm committed enough to one. I I love the idea that that Jesus's own sacrifice came with hesitance. That that Luke twenty two forty four um, those verses where he's crying out in pain and and saying, "Let this cup pass for pass from me." are real in a sense that they say, I don't want to do this. And so that atonement is not my sins going on him, but Jesus wrestling with his own desire to say, this might not be something I want to do, but I'll do it. It's a powerful metaphor for humanity that, that here, you know, the Son of God unwillingly on some level says, I'll do God's will. And that will, that, that happens in the New Testament, regardless if we like it or not. 
and that helps me kind of navigate the space. Well, I don't really sometimes like doing things that are good um, or that might be perceived as good. And so it atonement can be a much more personal grappling with the human plight. Okay. I'm a little less cosmic if that's a different way to say it, but yeah, I, I kind of bounce around here and I, I'm not a big adherent to any kind of singular theory myself. Do you like penal substitution? Not a lot. Me, me neither. Yeah, not a lot. Yeah. Are there any others that you like? Christus Victor, Ransom? I'm trying to remember what the Ellens are. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, I'm aware, but I, I just don't see the writers of the New Testament seeing that in the story. Um, I see the gospel, or sorry, not the gospel, but the book, the book of Revelation dealing with a, an, an enormous Jesus. He's grown in size, he's grown in power, he's grown in elegance. And that has some victor qualities to it. Um, he's this person that transcends the human experience, so he can stomp on anything, he can, you know, if you will, overpower anything. And so there's a sense of the hero Jesus, the powerful victor. So I see that there, but I also simultaneously struggle with the book of Revelation. I'm not a very apocalyptic person. I don't love thinking about that category. And so that's likely not going to be my favorite metaphor for it. Since you mentioned Revelation, is that a prophecy or did that happen in the days of Nero? I've heard, I've heard that. Uh, well, right. And yeah, that I am well aware of Doctrine and Covenant 77, which interprets it in modern terms. But I think that the author's speaking about his own day. Um, whether it can be applied into another time, is that's probably the question the Doctor and Covenants is grappling with. But I think he's talking about his people in his day that are going to happen um, then. I think that's what he's pretty clear about in the opening chapters. This is what's coming. These are the impending signs and so forth. So, and I, I, Revelation is my least favorite book in the Bible. <laughs> I need to read yours. Uh, is is yours easier to understand? <laughs> it's, it's it's a hard book. <laughs> the Greek is really bad in it, and bad meaning poor grammar, or what do you mean? Really poor grammar, and you know, dangling modifiers, and that's inherent in the Greek. So it, it's a hard book to to understand. Yeah, the author's not that gifted with Greek, at least if we compare him to, say, the author of Hebrews, who's very good with Greek. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I'm like, I'm going to wrap up, and then you say one more thing, and then I'm like, I'll get asked about that. John Hamer had just recently said that um, in Hebrews, it talks about the Melchizedek priesthood. Or, um, and John said that it was a that Joseph misinterpreted uh, Melchizedek and Aaronic priesthood, and that was like, oh well, we'll name it after that. Do, would you agree with that or not? Uh, I would have to go back and look at that one. That one's I, I really want to dodge. I just that's what I would have to go back and kind of know what was being said there. Um, but yeah, he does have a significant Joseph Smith translation about that and so forth. But yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Anything else we should share? I don't think so. Thanks for having me on. This is you're you're working on the Old Testament. Uh not right now. <laughs> no, no, right now. I need to twist your arm harder. I can tell. I know I'm working on some papyri and some other projects that are interesting to me. But um, yeah, I'm yeah. <laughs> Do you work on the martyrs very much? No, not not, not really. so much. No, 
Now, those texts are pretty, uh, you know, well documented and things. Uh-huh. I, I work on usually things that aren't published and that. Okay. All right. Well, Dr. Thomas Wayman, I really appreciate you for being here on Gospel Tangents. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Thomas Wayman. Tom, thank you for sitting down with me and indulging all my New Testament questions. If you haven't purchased his second edition from Culford Books, go out and get it because it's fantastic. In our next conversation, we're going to turn to the Book of Mormon and a brand new Book of Mormon geography theory I had never heard of until just a few months ago. Delmarva is taking Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia and combining it because it has all three states in that peninsula. And my theory is a little bit different than the regular Delmarva theory that's been out since the 90s, at least, um, because I'm encompassing some extra land that makes everything make sense, that makes everything flow perfectly. So it's the Delmarva extended version theory. Thanks for listening to Gospel Tangents. If you'd like to support me, please subscribe at gospeltangents.com or on patreon.com slash gospeltangents, or you can watch entire videos at youtube.com slash gospeltangents. I really can't do this without your support. I'd love to do it full time, and I need a lot more people that are willing to, to help me out. So I'd really appreciate that. So thanks again for listening, and don't forget to check out some of our other videos. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.